The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. you now to please turn in your Bible to Isaiah chapter 42. We continue in a short Advent series studying some ancient prophecies that prepare us for the coming Christ, the promised one of Israel. People say that you can endure anything as long as you have hope. As long as hope persists, even if it's false hope. People can endure and hang on. But when hope fades, then comes despair. We live in a world of unbelief, people who have no hope and people who live with false hope. But as believers in Christ, we are the possessors of true hope. So we believe upon the promise, the promised return of the Lord's servant who made a down payment on his promise by his life, death, and resurrection. We look to this ancient prophecy found in Isaiah 42, which offers a vision of the Messiah, whose birth we celebrate a week from now. Please please follow as I read chapter 42 of Isaiah 1 through 9. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen In whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. This is God's word. Let us pray. Father, once again, I would pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of each of our hearts might be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. This past Friday, I spent the day at home cleaning, helping my wife to put the house in order as we prepared to receive some dinner guests. 
My wife and I were discussing how children just don't see dirt. They just don't often see the mess that we parents can see. As much as we exhort them time and time again, their little eyes and minds just don't notice the things that need picking up. And as we shared and reflected upon our our childhood, we realized that we had been much the same. As I've grown older, I become more hardwired for for order. I, I joke with my wife, who keeps a lot of order in our home, but there are times I come home and I have to enter into the chaos to bring order as part of my, my job as husband and father. And I was reflecting how if I have such a strong desire to, to put things right, to make things orderly, how much more does God deeply long to make all things right? How is it that God can look upon a world filled with chaos, disorder, hurt, pain, injustice, and not intervene on every situation to make it just right? But God, in His infinite wisdom and restraint, is patient, awaiting that day when He will bring all things into order will establish justice on earth, who will right every wrong that has ever been committed. That is the biblical vision and the hope that we have as believers. It is the hope that enables us to endure great trials through what they call the veil of tears, a world filled with pain, heartache, unbelief, violence, lying, treachery, betrayal, and rebellion. The Bible assures us that all sinners will have their day in court, and all will stand condemned unless we stand with the one who was condemned in our place, vindicated by God himself when he rose from the dead. We gain insights this Advent season from this prophecy of Isaiah that teaches us to hope in the one who makes all things right and makes us right with the living God. The Lord introduces his servant in verse 1. He is the Lord's chosen in whom his soul delights and what he stands out because God's spirit is upon him. And you can't help but see the connection here that this language reflected in Jesus' baptism. When the Spirit comes down upon him like a dove to to fill him and equip him for his Father's mission. And we hear the voice of the Father from heaven. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. The Father delighting in the Son and the Son delighted to do the will of the Father. And, And Jesus appropriates this language from Isaiah and elsewhere to himself and is bold to declare that he is the very servant spoken of in the Old Testament. Now, the language, the servant language in Isaiah can refer at times to Old Testament Israel, to God's people. But where God's people failed, where they failed to fulfill God's vision to be a light to the nations, to establish justice, Jesus himself, the true Israel, the second Adam, 
fulfills this vision of prevailing with light and bringing justice on earth. He is the one who makes all things right again, who is both just and gentle. Notice how in verses 1 through 4, three times it declares the servant will bring forth justice. In verse 1, it says that he will bring justice to the nations. Ever since the fall of our first parents, this world has been, been broken with injustice. We have this constant struggle for justice and righteousness. In fact, the whole story of the Bible is one of conflict between the people of God and the people of the world, between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. From Genesis to Revelation, we see this cosmic conflict in, in progression. And oftentimes it appears that the enemies of God are winning. And it says that as we look throughout Scripture, we, we see from righteous Abel, killed by his brother Cain. We see in the story of Abraham. We see in Israel being oppressed by the Egyptians and later bullied by great nations, the Amalekites, the Canaanites, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks, and the Romans. We have a long story of oppression and injustice, God's people longing for deliverance. And it's not just God's people, Israel. Even the nations, even the surrounding nations, it says in the Psalms and in the prophets, are crying out under the oppression of harsh, tyrannical rule. Their slavery to false religions and capricious gods. There is a heart cry of the nations, desiring to see fulfilled God's promise to Abraham that he would make him a blessing to all nations that through Israel and then through the true Israel, the fulfillment in Christ, that all nations would see the glory of God and would see justice established on earth. We see the signs of God's justice throughout the pages of Revelation. In the days of Noah, when God brought justice on wicked men in the terrible worldwide flood, in the scattering of the people of Babel, in their pride and arrogance, God casting them, scattering them, confusing their languages that they might not congregate together in rebellion against the Lord, in bringing Egypt to its knees, crushing its false gods, and giving Israel its redemption and deliverance. We see God's justice revealed time after time after time, and yet it is not complete. It is only in part God in his wisdom and in his long suffering is waiting for that final day of grand justice. And the, the biblical notions that the, the nations, that even all of creation is awaiting the grand conclusion, that the finality, the final day of judgment when there will be justice once and for all. Verse 3 says that the servant will faithfully bring justice. And we see this in the life and the ministry of Jesus Christ, the one who perfectly fulfilled the law of God, who obeyed, who fulfilled the law that we could not fulfill. We see it in his testimony. We see it in his character, in his boldness to whip the money changers in the temple courts 
to overturn their tables, when he rebuked the Pharisees for their hypocrisy, when he stood up to Pontius Pilate, declaring that his authority was on loan from God. Jesus did not fear man. He did not take a bribe. And it's this characteristic of justice and righteousness that makes Jesus popular, even among non-believers. Even many people who dismiss Christianity, who despise the church, will still admire Jesus. The most powerful personality in the history of the world who spoke the truth and love. A man of integrity who gives us confidence that he will indeed bring justice to an unjust world. Verse 4 says that the servant would not grow weary or not grow discouraged until he's established justice on earth and the coastlands wait for his law. You're doing justice is hard work. Law enforcement is a never-ending task in a world filled with evildoers, human traffickers. Keep finding new ways to lure their victims, young women, into their trade, enslaving them with new forms of addiction, while police detectives struggle to stay on their trail. Identity thieves prowl 24-7, keeping government workers up at night, keeping our credit monitoring services vigilant to stop all the theft over digital transactions. God's people suffer injustice. Where their mouths are silenced, not free to freely express the gospel, to proclaim it among their own peoples, crying out for the end to human rights abuses. We see this, saw this contest at its peak in China just this past week as the order in the law of Beijing pressing upon the authorities in Chengdu to arrest church leader Wang Yi and a hundred of his followers, staff members and seminary students and members of his church. A, a clash between a communist regime and the boldness and courage of a church leader who recognizes that the two, the Christian church and communism, cannot be molded together, and they will not yield, defiantly resisting the pressure to register and to abdicate and to let the government control how they operate and what they teach and preach. The church in China is bold. It is young, it is resilient, even stubborn against the oppressive, oppressive forces around it. And my read and my understanding is that the authorities are scared because they are outnumbered by 100 million, the size of the house church movement versus the size of the Communist Party. It's a real clash, a clash for freedom, a clash for truth and righteousness and justice. And the hearts of our brothers and sisters in the Far East cry out for justice, along with the voice of the martyrs throughout the ages. I think there's many ways that, that the church in the Far East puts the American church to shame. But I think one of the areas where the Western church is most culpable 
is the way we have a tendency to downplay God's justice, our reluctance to uphold hard doctrines, the doctrine of hell, the doctrine of punishment, the doctrine of justice and righteousness. Whether it's an outright rejection of the doctrine of hell or whether it's a softening, a watering down of this doctrine, in the end, it's a, it's a denial of God's justice. Those who insist that their view of a temporal hell or even if eternal damnation doesn't exist at all, those who insist that such a view is more consistent with God's character, basically that the God has no right, no right to condemn people, or perhaps that God will merely extinguish the condemned from very, their very existence is not the biblical teaching, is not what is clear from the words of Holy Scripture. The noble efforts to affirm God's love and mercy can run roughshod over God's holiness and and supreme wisdom and justice. There are those who would make themselves be more wiser than God to water down one of the teachings that Jesus emphasized more than any other that hell is real, and that it is forever, and it is an expression of God's holiness and his judgment and justice. And so I think we would be wise to take this seriously, wise to not water down or not soft sell the bad news of the gospel, trying to make the gospel more palatable to sensitive minds and ears and hearts here in the West that hell is not just a place for the worst of sinners like Adolf Hitler, but it is a place of eternal judgment and justice. And to deny it, to soft-sell it, is to deny, to deny the Lord Jesus, the Son of God, who laid aside his glory, who humbled himself, who entered the world as a helpless baby, into a fallen world raised by sinful parents, upheld his Father's glory, and is perfectly justified to banish the wicked, the rebel, and unbelievers into everlasting torment, who went on to satisfy his Father's wrath for all of the elect, for all those who put their faith and their hope in him alone. You see, we don't do anybody a favor if we shield them from the bad news of the, of the gospel, the consequences for sins, Because when we do so, we deny those who have been oppressed. We deny those who have been pushed around and bullied by evildoers. We deny them the hope of the Word of God. That the hope of Scripture says that that God is a just judge. He will bring sinners to account. And to ignore this teaching, to deny it, is to take for granted, I think, something we as Americans and who, who live in a constitutional democracy, uh, in a republic, who, who for, the better, for the better part, most of us uh, live well. Most of us enjoy a sense of justice. Our justice system is far from perfect, but it's pretty good compared to the rest of the world and compared to human history. And I think we need to take the biblical perspective to apply it to people 
living under tyrannical regimes, people who have seen horrendous violence. As we hear the stories of our own African refugees, uh, the horrendous brutality many of them have suffered. We must not soft sell this message of justice that shows up over and over and over again throughout the Old Testament and is found right here in the pages of, of, of Isaiah in chapter 42, offering a biblical vision of the Messiah, that Christ will come in judgment. Even the Quran, even the, the holy book of Muslims declares that Jesus is the one who returns to judge the quick and the dead. And we agree with that, that we understand Jesus very differently from the Muslims, that he is truly a son of God. Fully God and fully man, as Dr. Rogers emphasized this morning. But we have something better. Something better than the false hopes that are propagated throughout this unbelieving world. You see, those who hold to atheism, those who reject God completely, also deny justice. They abandon all true hope that justice and righteousness will be done against real evil. And even secular humanism is but a pipe dream that will never, ever achieve peace and justice and lasting hope. We have something to offer before a world that longs and hungers for justice and righteousness as we put our hope in the servant of the Lord who will come to establish justice on earth. So the Lord's servant is indeed just, but he is also gentle. He can take on the strong, but he also knows how to handle the weak. He confronts the evildoers and brings them to justice, but he also raises up the oppressed, restoring their dignity and honor. Verse 3 says that a bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. The servant recognizes our human frailty. He remembers that we are but dust. And for those whose faith is no bigger than a mustard seed, he will not dismiss or deny. The servant does not despise small beginnings. One of our missionaries ends his newsletters saying, I'm holding firmly, even as I am firmly Held. The Lord, who is in mighty, ba- mighty in battle, is no reckless rogue. The great shepherd of the sheep can fend off the wolves from the flock, but also provide tender, loving care to wounded sheep. I think that sometimes there are people in our lives, people even in the church, to whom we think to ourselves, he's hopeless. She's hopeless. They will never change. He will never get it, never get over it, never get with it or grow up or overcome some sin pattern, a debilitating fear, overwhelming regret, deep despair, anger, resentment, and other forms of human weakness. In our own impatience and our demanding ways, we, we may be tempted to give up on such bruised reeds, but not the Lord's 
servant. He will not break them or turn his back on them. He will never leave nor forsake his bruised reeds. And for those whose hope reflects the mere embers of a dying fire pit, which has long lost its heat, the Lord's servant will not stamp it out. And though many believers may feel beaten down by the trials of life, by terrible loss, broken dreams, unmet longing, beget besetting sin, those who feel like a Christmas candle that's just moments away becoming all wax and no wick. Jesus will not snuff out, but will restore them and renew a flame of hope to make such a person light around gloomy darkness. He is the giver of hope who promises to make all things right in a world that has gone so wrong. God is both just and the justifier. This servant will not only make all things right, but make you and I right before God. He is our righteous Redeemer. Verse 5 reminds us that God is the Lord. He is Yahweh, the creator of the vastness of the heavens. And every species of plant and animal on earth, the last I checked, the number of stars in the universe is somewhere around one with, followed by 21 zeros, an unbelievably high number, more than the grains of sand on earth's shores. And there are something like 8.7 million species of animals on the earth. We haven't even come close to chronicling and cataloging all of them. God loves vastness and diversity. But it indicates here in our text that God made man his crown of creation in his own image, filling him with a breath of life. And the Lord calls this servant in righteousness. For what purpose? Well, this righteous servant who is faultless, blameless, is a perfect representative, a high priest for God's people. There's an intimate picture here of, of God and his servant walking hand in hand as partners. And this is seen in the, the deep intimacy and dependence Jesus had with his father during his life on earth. It says here that the servant will be a covenant for the people. Throughout the Old Testament, God makes various covenants with Adam, Noah, Moses, and David. Even the, the nation of Israel was in covenant with God. It, it's, it's a contract. It, it, it's, it's an agreement, a binding set of laws between the Lord and his people. And though Israel failed and violated that covenant and were issued a certificate of divorce, the servant would come to make a new covenant, to renew and restore a relationship between God and his people. And it took a righteous servant to accomplish such a task, to bring about the great work of our redemption. Verse 7 speaks of this great rescue effort of the servant who will come to open the eyes of the blind, 
to bring the prisoners out of their gloomy dungeons, those who sit in darkness, shackled by sin, grief, and despair, will find freedom, life, and hope through their Redeemer who offers the forgiveness of sins. Countless people whose hearts are full of anger and fear, I believe, are in bondage due to unforgiven sin. And sin is something that that we can't remove. We can't deal with it. No amount of wealth can pay for sin. No higher levels of education can ever explain away sin. No amount of entertainment, drugs, and alcohol can ever drown out the conscience of sin. And no measure of good works or religious activity will ever make up the debt of our sin. We all fall short. We cannot set ourselves free. We are locked up with a key thrown into the depths of the sea, helpless and hopeless, until one comes who can tear down our gates and break us free from our chains. Many of God's people struggle with a deep sense of worthlessness, past abuse, past failures. And the gospel offers hope that you have a new worth, a new value, a a new identity in the work of Christ who makes you precious and beautiful in the sight of God. Many of God's people struggle to forgive themselves for faults, for failures, living with regret. As I understand the gospel, I believe that oftentimes our failure to forgive ourselves is rooted in pride, wanting to, insisting to pay our own way rather than appropriate the gracious forgiveness, the grace and mercy of the Lord who forgives us, enables us to live at peace with God, with ourselves, and with others. Sometimes God's people really struggle to forgive other people and get stuck in a rut of entitlement filled with resentment, clinging to their pity party. And the gospel would instruct us to die to self, to see ourselves in light of God's holiness and righteousness and his graciousness and see other people, those who've sinned, even sinned greatly against us, to see them the way God sees them, to empathize with a fellow sinner and to receive the grace of the gospel to be set free from the bondage of a grudge, the bitterness of heart that eats away at the soul. This is the servant who redeems us, who promises a future where we are set free from sin forever. So this is the hope the hope that we have, a hope that the world knows nothing about, a reasonable hope, a hope based upon the power and the wisdom of Almighty God. We live in a world of all kinds of competing false hopes, religious false hopes, secular 
false hopes, scientific false hopes. But none of them can meet the deep needs of our hearts. And so none of them can satisfy and establish us upon the foundation of hope that Jesus Christ gives to us. Our hope is a reasonable hope based upon the power and the knowledge of God who entered time, space, and history, subjected his own son to man's worst to redeem the best of man's nature and restore him into fellowship with the living God. I was surprised in my visit to China to see that the Chinese now celebrate Christmas. The young people especially, all over the place, there are advertisements and Christmas trees and Santa Claus and red and green and all kinds of uh, commercial Western approaches to the celebration of Christmas. And you can even, even hear in the stores Christmas music playing. And, and it's not just jingle bells. It's the God-honoring, Christ-exalting Christmas hymns. And I learned that many of these store owners have no idea what they're playing. It's just Western, it's hip, and it's meeting the, the commercial needs in China. Well, as a oppressive government seeks to appease its people through material prosperity, there's a rising tide of people for whom that does not satisfy, whose deep longing oppressed by decades of atheistic governing are hungering for something that is truly hope, that offers long-lasting hope, a hope with foundations, a hope that we share in the Lord's servant who is just, who is gentle, who is our righteous redeemer and is the only hope of all the nations. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Father, we indeed are a grateful and hopeful people because you have fulfilled your promise. You have made good on the promise and the prophecy given so long ago that your servant would come who would come in justice and righteousness, in gentleness and humility to bring forth redemption, to purchase our redemption by his life and his sacrificial death, and has secured our hope by rising from the dead and promising to return. As we enter into this final week of Advent, may we enter in with great hope and lasting joy. And may you be glorified in us and through us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.